0: Please pray with me as we open God's word together. Father, we long for your voice, just as the crowds that watched Jesus be baptized heard your voice, um, we long to hear your voice too. We know that your word is life to us and health and peace, and we ask to hear you clearly this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Over the Christmas break, I got to spend a week uh, with family over in Jacksonville, And I had a lot of great conversations while I was there. But one of the most interesting I had was with one of Sarah's uncles who had come down to see us from North Carolina. So I was talking with this uncle, and we were talking about his somewhat cool relationship with his local church there. Um, And it opened up a lot of questions that he had about his faith. And I I tell you the truth, the very first question that he came out with was, what is going on with Jesus' baptism? (laughs) Uh, He said, the Bible says that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, but it also says that Jesus didn't have any sin, so why on earth did he need to be baptized? That seems like an embarrassing contradiction. That was really his first question. And we talked about that for a while, and now today I climb back into the pulpit for a new year, and lo and behold, this Sunday is the baptism of our Lord. And I need to teach on the very subject that we were discussing over Christmas. Uh, I think the question that Sarah's uncle asked is a really important one. uh, And I want to look back at what Matthew's gospel said about Jesus' baptism to see if we can start to figure out what's going on here. So uh, let's find it now together. Page 808 of the Black Church Bibles. um, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3 on page 808. We're beginning at verse 13. Matthew 3, verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now this part's really interesting. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what I shared with Sarah's uncle over Christmas break was first that John knew at the time that he was baptizing Jesus that Jesus didn't need to be baptized for sin, didn't he? John knew that. Did you notice that in the text? It's not an embarrassing contradiction within scripture, because John himself felt awkward about it. And that's why he said, me? Baptize you? Shouldn't it be the other way around? (laughs) Um, But Jesus' response was to say that it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So that was Jesus' explanation. And to be fair, that's pretty mysterious, isn't it? Uh, Perhaps John knew what Jesus meant at the time, but I'm really not sure I do. So what I suggested to Sarah's uncle was that the baptism was part of Jesus identifying with us, with our humanity. So we know that Jesus took on flesh, just like ours, that he experienced pain and frustration and temptation like we all do. He put himself in our place in every way so that he could eventually substitute his life for ours Uh, On the cross, it's like that Indiana Jones scene. He's got the idol in the temple and the bag of sand. He's got to get it just the right weight and then flip them, flip them. Jesus wanted to substitute, be as like us as possible, right? Uh, That's how he saved us. And so part of that total identification with us included beginning his ministry with baptism, just like all of us will begin our lives with God with baptism. He's identifying with us, just like Jordan's going to do right here in just a few minutes. Um, And so maybe that was a decent answer. Maybe some of you theologians in the congregation are nodding your heads. That might be okay. Uh, Maybe that is part of the reason that it was fitting. But then, as I've been studying for the sermon this week, I found what I think is a much better answer. And it was really handed to me on a plate by the wise scholars who put together our lectionary. Uh, We have a set of four readings that are prescribed to us each Sunday of the year. And for today, on the subject of the baptism of Jesus, we were handed the account of it happening in the Gospels and three other passages from Scripture that help us to interpret what's happening. We just read all of them aloud. Isaiah chapter 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Then Psalm 89, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. And then finally we heard from Acts chapter 10, where Peter says to Cornelius and the other Gentiles, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And those are amazing passages. And you put those three together, what do you see? you see that all three of them are telling exactly the same story. They're telling the story of God choosing one man, his servant, anointing him with his Holy Spirit and sending him off to heal the world. In all these passages, we find God's choice, we find God's anointing, we find power, and we find purpose. And it becomes clear, especially from Acts 10, that all of these passages were fulfilled in a moment in time. They were fulfilled when Jesus was baptized by John at the River Jordan. This, then, was the moment when Jesus was anointed. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, said Peter. So we're going to unpack today, what does that mean? Because I'm going to imagine that a lot of us have no idea what it means to anoint something (laughs) or what effect that has or what significance that has in the Bible. And that's fine. We don't use that word very much. Um, So let's start from the beginning. First, what did anointing mean in the Old Testament? Second, what did anointing mean for Jesus's identity? And then third, what did anointing mean for Jesus's mission? And finally, as we close, we'll consider what anointing means means for us today. So first, what did anointing mean in the Old Testament? Like most Hebrew words, the word for anointing is a very simple word. Hebrew is very grounded. It's very earthy. And the word for anointing is mashah. And it means to smear, (laughs) to spread a liquid uh, or to paint All right, so you're spreading something. Um, And the liquid you're spreading is never water because water's far too thin. Uh, If you're spreading water, you're not smearing, you're washing. Uh, The most common liquid to smear was oil, and it was usually olive oil because there were so many olives. Um, So to anoint something simply meant to smear it with oil. And ancient people had a lot of practical reasons for doing that. Uh, The oil was usually smeared over people, on their hair and on their skin, and it it felt good. It was like lotion at the spa. Uh, It was refreshing, it healed your dry and cracked skin, and it improved your appearance. So that's all mashar really means, smear smear it with oil. Um, But far more than that, from earliest days, the smearing with oil took on a religious significance for making something holy to God. So uh, if you read through your Bibles, the very first thing that ever gets anointed in the Bible is Jacob's pillar at Bethel. All the way back in Genesis 31, if you remember the story, uh, Jacob was sleeping out in the desert, right? And uh, he used a rock as a pillow. Uh, I don't know why he did that. He, he grabbed a rock and used it as a pillow. And the miracle of the story is that he actually fell asleep. Um, LAUGHTER And while he slept, he dreamed of a stairway to heaven with angels going up and down it. And much later, Led Zeppelin would write a song about it. Um, When Jacob woke up from his dream, he called the place Bethel, or House of God. And he set up his rock pillow as a monument, and he smeared oil on it. It just says he poured oil, all right? And that's back in Genesis 28 when it describes what Jacob did. But that doesn't use the word mashah at all in that chapter. It comes three chapters later as the first use of the word. And it's when God is recounting that incident to Jacob. God uses the word for the first time. He says, you anointed the pillar and you made a vow to me. So it really seems that God himself invests that oil-smearing action with the holy significance ...that it later has in the rest of his word. So let's speed on through the Old Testament. And we find that the next thing to be anointed are people... ...and specifically the priests. There are a whole bunch of instructions in the law of Moses... ...for the anointing of Aaron and his sons to serve as Israel's priests. They made a special anointing oil according to the recipe God gave them... ...and they anointed Aaron and his sons to consecrate them... ...and set them apart for the work of the tabernacle. And then the same anointing oil was also used to consecrate the objects of worship including the altar itself. Nothing was used in the worship of the living God without first being anointed and consecrated but then the word gets really interesting in the time of the kings, because the first king was anointed by the prophet Samuel. Uh, Samuel chose Saul to be Israel's first king. He did it by anointing him with oil. And nobody cared about that gesture more than Saul's successor, King David, did. So you remember that there was a, a story where David was a young man and that he became a servant of King Saul. Then Saul became jealous of David and repeatedly tried to kill him, and David was forced to run away. And Saul and his army chased after him. And then at one point, David hid away himself in a cave. And he had like 30 great warriors, strong warriors who were with him, hiding in his cave with him. And King Saul, who's chasing him, completely unsuspecting, walks into the cave alone to take a pee, right? And, and he's completely vulnerable. And the men who are with David say, you've got to kill Saul, this is your chance. And David said, he said this, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. David here turns the verb mashah into the noun Mashiach, the anointed one. And we transliterate that noun into English, and it gives us a word, Messiah. That's where it comes from, the Messiah is the anointed one, the one who's set apart by God and consecrated for a purpose, particularly the purposes of serving as a priest or reigning as a king. So in a kingly sense, Saul was the first Messiah. And then David himself was the second Messiah. David, too, was anointed with oil by Samuel. And for his whole life, he treasured his identity as the anointed one. He talked about it more than anyone. So then, as Israel looked ahead to God's promise that a king would be born in the line of mighty David, who was even greater than David and who would reign on his throne forever. What better title for that promised king than the Messiah? There had been other messiahs, but this one would be so categorically different that he deserved a unique title, the Messiah. This is what the Jewish people ever since the time of the kings had been expecting God to do. That is what anointing meant in the Old Testament. And we believe that the unique title of the Messiah belongs to Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the king born in the line of David, and he is the true anointed one because, as Peter said, he was anointed at his baptism by the Holy Spirit. So second, what did anointing mean for Jesus' identity? The baptism of Jesus told him who he was in more than one sense. And it's not that he didn't know before. I'm sure he did know. Um, But Jesus wore a lot of hats. He carried a lot of titles. Some of those titles have belonged to him from all eternity because of his own divine nature, like the title Mighty God. He's always had that. And all of the titles Jesus has have belonged to him from eternity by his father's righteous decree, but some of those titles came to Jesus in time through the events of his life on earth. So it was in being conceived in Mary's womb that Jesus became incarnate, as our creed says, and received the name Emmanuel, God with us. It was in dying on the cross that Jesus became our sin bearer. And here it was in his baptism that he became the Messiah, the anointed one, because the anointed one needs an anointing. And this anointing was also a major step in Jesus becoming king. So the English bishop and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has a book called How God Became King. You read that title and you think, that's weird. It sounds funny. Wasn't God always king? He rules the world, right? And yes, Jesus has always been the rightful ruler of the earth by virtue of being its creator and its sustainer. But it's vital for us to see that Jesus also became our rightful human king in his flesh according to all the legitimate king-making apparatus in the human world. According to heredity, according to anointing, and according to righteous conquest, there's no way to become a king that Jesus didn't use to become our king. Our God became king, and a major step was his anointing in his baptism. So his baptism confirmed his identity. He heard the voice from heaven crying, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descended from heaven to anoint him as Messiah." And everything that followed in Jesus' ministry proceeded from this core identity. So right at the beginning of his ministry, he introduces himself in the synagogue at Nazareth with the words from Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and so on. And then Jesus' question to his disciples was, who do people say I am? Who do they say, I am? And he was waiting to hear the answer that Peter gave. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. Because Christ, of course, is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Greek Christos means anointed one. And just like the Hebrew, the word carries with it that same idea of smearing with oil. In fact, the Greek word Christos gives us the root of our English word greasy. They come from the same root. So we might call him Jesus Greasy. In fact, please do that. If the word Christ has become meaningless to you, if it's too churchy for you, if it started to sound something like Jesus' last name, call him Jesus Greasy instead. Or call him Jesus the Messiah if that's better for you. Don't allow the language to become meaningless. We can't let ourselves lose that connection between his title and his anointing. So in another part of my conversation with Sarah's uncle over Christmas, we were talking about the simple fact that Jesus was Jewish, which matters very much to this uncle, especially since his recent trip to Israel. But he said in the town where he lives in North Carolina, if you stood up in most of the local churches and said Jesus was Jewish, they'd tar and feather you. Sorry about that terrible accent. Those were his words. Um, I'm not quite sure whether to believe him on that point, but if it's even close to true, it's horrifying, isn't it? Because what Bible can you be reading to miss the fact that Jesus was Jewish? I turn page after page and I see it over and over again. You'd have to toss out the whole Old Testament. Is there a page of the Gospels or a page of Paul that you could read and miss that basic point? And if you've missed that, what else have you lost? What kind of Jesus is in your head? Because the way that Jesus, the Son of God, is introduced to us is through his family, through Israel, through the language of the history of Israel. If you're talking about salvation, you're thinking the exodus. If you're talking about God's presence, you're thinking the tabernacle. If you're talking about forgiveness, it's the sacrificial system. And so on forever. In other words, all the language of Jesus was penned first by Moses and then David and Isaiah and the rest. If you know them, you know Jesus. If you don't know them, how can you expect to know Jesus? Stripped from his Jewish context, surely the Jesus you worship has become merely a figment of your own imagination central to his identity was his anointing as the king in the line of David. That's the great climax of the epic Old Testament story. So we need to receive the identity of our Savior, not as we imagine him, but as he's been introduced to us in his true identity from his Father God. Now, third, what did anointing mean for Jesus's mission? Nobody in the history of Scripture was ever anointed just to sit around and do nothing. No, if there's an anointing, it means there's a job to do, and especially so for the king. So let's turn back in our Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 42. And here we find the job description for the Messiah. Page 602 of the Church Bibles, Isaiah 42. Page 602. So Isaiah 42 contains the first of what we call the servant songs in Isaiah. And it's an unbelievably rich and meaningful chapter. We're just going to glide through it now very briefly. Um, Isaiah 42, beginning at verse 1, says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold. And we now recognize that that servant is Jesus. It says, My chosen, in whom my soul delights. And we hear the echoes of God's voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It goes on. I have put my spirit upon him. We saw the spirit descending like a dove. And now here's the job description. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Think about Jesus' life of humility, his lack of fanfare. Think about the privacy around his healing miracles. Verse 3 goes on, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Think about Jesus with Mary Magdalene, or the ten lepers, or blind Bartimaeus, not breaking a bruised reed. It goes on in verse 3, He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is a wonderful promise. We know that the coastlands are still waiting for his law. The most distant lands still do not feel the healing balm of the law of the Messiah. But we know from scripture that it is coming. That our Messiah has not grown faint or been discouraged. His work goes on until it is finished because the word of the Lord stands forever. And we see in this passage that the Messiah was given specifically for the nations. So yes, certainly he was Jewish. He was a Jewish king, but he was a Jewish king with a world-encompassing kingdom. Because look at verse 6, God says there, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And surely that is a Hebrew parallelism. Two little statements that talk about the same thing. So surely the people in the first part of the statement are all the nations. And surely the light in the second part of the statement is the light of a new covenant. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So if we, if we understand that properly, then amazingly, what's promised in Isaiah 42 is the first covenant in the Bible that's not just for the children of Abraham. It's a covenant for everyone in the world, a Messiah for the whole world. In the other covenants, there was a spillover effect to the nations, but here there's a covenant for the nations. So I hope we can see the incredibly strong connection here between the work that Jesus was anointed for and the work that he went about doing. They were the same thing. Jesus' anointing not only gave him his sense of identity, but also his purpose. He was handed a job to do, and he did it with focus and determination, and he's still doing it. So then, for us today, what does this idea of anointing mean? What significance does it have in our own lives? First, we recognize the anointing that is upon our Lord Jesus. And we, ourselves, understand who he is on the basis of that anointing. So you might feel this morning that you're wondering now how well you really know Jesus because your knowledge of Old Testament history is a bit spotty. And friend, that's okay because we're saved by him and not by how much we know about him. There's a big difference. But if you are feeling that this morning, then how about you change that? How about you make a new commitment to know Jesus better by reading the history of Israel, his people? That would be a great next step for you. Get yourself familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, realizing that it's become the family history of your family too. Um, If anyone decides to do that today, then the pastors will rejoice and fill your hands with resources. Um, So first, Jesus had a unique anointing from God as the Messiah. But that's not to say that there's no anointing for anyone else, is it? Because we already saw that there is. There was an anointing for Aaron and for Saul and David and many others in the Old Testament. And in fact, there's now an, an anointing for all the saints of God in the New Testament. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Huge ideas. That's another whole sermon's worth of ideas to unpack in that statement. But for today, let's just close by saying that as baptized followers of Jesus, we also have a personal anointing from God by the Holy Spirit. Just as it was for Jesus, that anointing includes a foundational identity, that we are the beloved sons and daughters of the Father. It also includes a job description, a purpose. Some of that job description is common to all of us, like praying and loving one another and having concern for the poor. But other parts of it are specific to each one of us as individuals. The anointing goes along with the gifts of the Holy Spirit for works of service. So, to give you an example, Kelsey is personally anointed in our midst to lead us in worship. Praise the Lord. So here's a question for you this morning. Do you know what your special anointing from God is? Do you know? It's okay if you don't know yet. Sometimes God makes it clear right away, and other times he lets it emerge slowly over time. But if you know, then I ask you to call it to mind again this morning and hold on to it in your heart. And if you don't know, then pray that the Lord might show it to you when the time is right, because it is a precious thing to know. Then question two, if you know what your anointing is from God, is that where you're investing your time and energy right now? Because what we've seen in the life of Jesus is that the work that he went about doing was completely in line with his anointing, the job description as the Messiah. So for us, if we have been anointed by God, are we living into that? Are we living into that calling, following God's call on our lives? Because I think we know that if we've become distracted in our calling, we're probably just wasting our time. And I've been realizing that for myself recently. So I'll repeat to all of you the charge that we gave to our leaders yesterday at the leader meeting, that we make 2022 the year that we find our ministry. Find the way that you serve God that fires you up, that gives you endless creativity and boundless energy, a place of service in God's kingdom that engages your heart, and brings you alive. That will be your calling and your anointing. Some of you have definitely found it, like those of you who do prison ministry and know that when you do that, you're operating at the center of God's call for your life. But if you haven't found it yet, try to find it this year, make it a prayer. Pray, ask the Lord for guidance, and try on a few things for size. So now, just before we continue our service with Jordan's baptism, let's have just a few moments of silence. So we can picture Jesus being baptized and reflect on this message in Scripture of the Lord's anointing. Father God, speak to the hearts of your people.